Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond. This episode is sponsored by Bitstamp and CypherTrace. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by Coindesk. And now, here's your host, NLW. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Thursday, June 4th, and I am really excited for this conversation today, guys. I'm joined by Jeffrey P. Snyder from Alhambra Investments. And as you guys know, usually I kind of just give my own rendition of what makes someone interesting rather than reading their own bio. But for Jeff, I have to read at least part of his bio. So this is from the Alhambra website. It says, Jeff is the head of global research at Alhambra Investments. He is not an economist, which is probably why he's been able to develop a working model of the global monetary system. His research is unique and informative in ways that an economist would never consider. I, I think that that perfectly captures Jeff's tone and his different outlook, let's say, on the world. And that's a lot of what we talk about today. Jeff, I've noticed for a long time, he puts out some of the most interesting and compelling essays and writing and just thinking on macroeconomics, and in particular focuses on a number of areas of the system that many others simply don't. So in this interview, you'll hear a lot about the euro dollar system and the shadow banking system and these forces which are uh, huge, significant drivers in the economy, but are hidden. They're subaltern, they're subterranean to what we see. And they have, in Jeff's estimation, a huge determining impact on what monetary policy can and can't do. In fact, as you'll hear, one of Jeff's key theses is that central banks just simply don't have the power they believe they have to shape monetary policy. And in that context, they become propaganda machines, effectively marketing machines to inspire self-fulfilling prophecies. You will love this conversation, I promise. I know because I loved having it. And a final note, as always, long interview means lightly edited. So let's dive in. All right. I am here with Jeff Snyder. Jeff, thanks so much for joining today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, so for people who don't know you, uh, could you say just a little bit about what you do other than write uh, incredibly thought-provoking uh, ideas and put together really great slide presentations? <laughs> well, I work for a company called Alhambra Investments. Um, you can find us at alhambrapartners.com where we just do, we're a registered investment advisor offering portfolio management services. But what we also do is try to, you know, educate the public for what we found is, you know, what's really going on in the world out there, you know, a deeper dive into the macroeconomic themes behind some of the things that we see in, in our daily world. And as part of that, you just launched something called Eurodollar University, which I, I've been really, really liking. I'd love for you to, to share a little bit about that. And maybe also, uh, because I think it's a good, it's good an entree into a lot of the things that you think about as anything else, where that name Eurodollar University came from. Well, Eurodollar University is sort of a separate but a related project where it's really about uh, public education, trying to get people to understand and, and uh, to have a real deep appreciation so that they can um, interpret and have a, a, a means of, an, of, of, of a framework from which they can interpret the way things are going on in the world and what's happening across a lot of different, you know, not just the bond market or financial markets, but even, you know, the political and social context. The name Eurodollar as part of Eurodollar University comes from the, the old term, which simply meant offshore dollars. What, what you find when you look at the topic is that for many, many years, going back decades, even you know, almost uh, more than half a century, 
that there's this been there's been this offshore dollar system that has grew up and evolved separate and in a lot of ways separate from the, what we're all taught about how the financial system works and it's been allowed to perpetuate itself and grow and, and do all these kinds of things so that it affects basically all corners of the economy throughout the, you know the global economy too so we have this this offshore dollar system that practically no one uh, even is even aware exists and even fewer still have any real appreciation or understanding about what goes on in it. It's really interesting. And in some ways, following your work, this idea of this uh, hidden system, right? This shadow system that exists right there and exerts huge gravitational pull on our financial system becomes uh, also almost a metaphor for how you approach a lot of things. I think the subcontext for a lot of your writing is this is the story, this is the narrative, but here's the narrative violation. Here's what's actually going on or, or a different way to look at this. Is that is that a byproduct? Is that is that kind of just a, a you know, the, the, the way that you see the world generally, or is that just a byproduct of the way that kind of current financial media is structured? Well, it's a little, it's an intersection of both, right? I mean, I, I have to start with the, the euro dollar system as my framework of understanding, because I think that's that's how the world actually runs. But we've all been taught from the very beginning, you know, nothing about it. We've, we've been taught, you know, an entirely different set of, of parameters. And so there's always this conflict about how do we interpret the all of these things that are taking place when we're given a, a, a worldview that doesn't seem to hold. And so it's, 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 you know, it's always in conflict between, okay, this is what everybody says interest rates are supposed to do, but this is how you should really interpret them in the way that things actually work. So let's actually start maybe if if you if we could uh, and lay some foundations for people who aren't familiar with the euro dollar system who aren't familiar with kind of the shadow banking system what it means and what is that that uh, kind of force that exerts in the economy today. Well, it's a bank-centered monetary system that again I, that evolved starting in the 1950s, where it was banks trading or originally currency, but you know for whatever reasons, uh, over time they evolved where there is simply banks, this interbank system that exists in the offshore world. And offshore is a key is a key uh, term here. That's what the euro and euro dollar actually means. It means offshore dollar. It doesn't have anything to do with the European common currency. So uh, these offshore dollars are bank-centered liabilities. They get traded in these vast, enormous uh, interbank markets, which then dictates the flow of finance around the world, if dictates the economic direction around the world. And because it's, it's evolved in this way, because it's evolved in this offshore capacities, there's very little that authorities can do. There's very little that central bankers are able to do except to try to influence the behavior of the banks in that system through what are essentially uh, expectations policy, which are, you know, basically sentimental indications. How does this compare in size to kind of the, the, the system that we see, the system that we understand? Well, I mean, that, that's, you know, it's a tough question to answer and it really shouldn't be. But it, the reason it's a tough question to answer is because this, this euro dollar system has evolved for so long and had been let go for so long, we really don't have any idea of how big it is. We know it's an enormous thing because we can, we can piece together what's going on that is probably orders of magnitude bigger than the domestic U.S. dollar system. But, you know, again, that, that's part of our problem here is we're, we're, we're dealing with what we call shadow money for a reason because it takes place entirely in the shadows. We don't have any sense of how big it is. And we really don't under, we don't really know what's going on a lot of times because if a bank in Singapore is doing some kind of dollar-based liability with a bank, say, in Brazil, we would have no way of knowing what's really going on. 
So it, it's shadow money is, is, is a perfect term for, the, for what's, what takes place here because it truly does take place in the shadows. And so what that forces us to do is try to work backwards from what we do see in markets and the way markets behave, prices behave, in order to try to tease out what must be taking place in the shadows for which we have very little data and, and very little definition. That's interesting. It's almost like studying the dark matter of the universe by figuring out what's unexplained by the the matter that we can observe, right? That's why, you know, I always use the analogy of quarks because, you know, quarks are an accepted part of fundamental physics. Everybody, you know, every physicist believes that quarks are an elementary nature of matter, but they've never been directly observed. The only reason we know they're there is because of what they do, what they exert forces on other objects, and we can observe those other objects um, and then in, interpret how, you know, it must be a quark that is causing these other phenomenon that we do see. That's really what we're doing. I mean, we look at the bond market, we look at, you know, money curves, we look at, you know, economic data, we can say, okay, we, we can't see what's actually going on in the shadow money system. But we know because all of these things are, are telling us, they're all pointing in the same direction and saying, hey, there's a problem here. So, and this is, there is, have been attempts uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there have been growing attempts, it seems, to try to monitor this, right? To, to try to get a better handle on on the the how this the system works. Is that the case? I don't know if I would say monitor. There, there's definitely been some progress made toward appreciating the fact that this thing does exist, because you know, for the for the longest time, you, you couldn't say euro dollar. I mean, it's it's a dirty little secret of the central bank. This is another part of the thing, but central banks can't define money anymore, and they haven't been able to since the '60s. And so you think, well, if a central bank can't define money, what the hell is monetary policy? And that's where you really get off into the deep end of what central banks actually do. But you know, to your point. Um, you know, it's really about how this monetary bank centered system, it, it approaches, you know, the rest of the world and how it intersects with the rest of the world in a way that, you know, just over the last couple of years, finally, people are starting to put these things together that, OK, this is how it, there must be this euro dollar system must actually exist because it's the only way to, to we can finally explain all of these things that have taken place. So yeah, so I, what are the what are some of the outcomes? I mean, it seems to me that the presence of this system would render monetary policy, uh, if not uh, completely useless, it certainly has a, a demonstrative impact on the efficacy of any given policy. Yeah, I tend to overstate it sometimes to say central banks are entirely irrelevant, which is <laughs> this is probably taking it <laughs> too far. Uh, but monetary policy is is largely in the face of what's going on in the shadow money system. It's it, it's it's not that's not completely powerless and, and impotent, but it's it's pretty close to it. And really, I mean, that's the only way you can explain 2008. I mean, forget about what's going on recently. Let's go back 12 years. The reason we had a global financial crisis in the first place, again, global financial crisis. How do you get a global financial crisis from the U.S. subprime mortgages? You don't. What you had was this global monetary system, this hidden shadow money euro dollar system, which experienced its first big crisis. And what it, and it what it amounted to was a massive global dollar shortage, which which then caused the global financial crisis. And the central bank, no matter what it did, Ben Bernanke's Fed, which I mean, everybody thought it was considerable financial rescue. I mean, the Fed was doing a whole lot of stuff, and for a while there, their, their, you know, their balance sheet was rising rather rapidly, and everybody called it money printing. Yet. All the the end result of all that money printing was somehow a global financial crisis, and how do you you know how do you reconcile those two things? We can see the Fed is doing a lot of stuff. Everybody's calling it money printing, yet we have this global monetary crisis, 
And so, you know, again, how do you reconcile those two results? And the answer is that the Fed was responding to the same thing the global economy was responding to, which was a shadow money dollar shortage that it had very little ability to redirect and impact. So I want to come back to a whole bunch of points from that. But I actually, first, I want to start going back even farther to something that you mentioned before. You said that in the 60s, central banks stopped being able to identify or, or correctly uh, profile money. Can you go into that a little bit more? Well, what happened, well, again, because this is a bank-centered system, because of a variety of reasons, including some you know Great Depression-era banking regulations that were getting in the way of, of the way banks wanted to operate – what happened was banks started using all sorts of creative means to do to accomplish monetary ends. For example, you know, to get around Regulation Q, which put a ceiling on how much uh, banks could pay for deposits, in a rising rate environment, in a rising inflationary environment of in the 1960s, customers wanted higher rates, but yet they were they were uh, regulatorily prevented from offering them. So they began offering something called repurchase agreement accounts, which are nothing more than repo, what we call repo today, because that was not a depository account, therefore kind of skirted the rules. And what happened was, you know, especially corporate customers began to use more and more of these repo accounts and then began to write checks against these repo accounts, even though repo didn't fall under the traditional monetary definition. So as more funds moved, more cash, more money moved into the repo market, it moved outside of the traditional monetary definitions, what put it into the shadows, even though companies and banks in the real economy were using these other different kinds of methods to achieve very real or very real monetary goals. So that's what happened. There's monetary evolution where banks started doing a whole bunch of different things. And there are things like, you know, negotiation upon withdrawal accounts and money market funds and all of these, you know, today things that we take for granted that back then were revolutionary that, that stretched the boundaries of money and, and it took it outside of the traditional definition so that central banks could no longer really define which, which, which account is monetary, which account is money, is a deposit, is a repo. I mean, all of this confusion and this evolution meant that you know, if you can't if you can't define money, you certainly can't target money, and therefore you can't you know you can't it, you can't intervene as a central bank directly in the money supply if you can't actually define any of it. And and so for those who are trying to kind of understand like what what this okay how does it expand from there right and what does what does it look like to have you know the shadow word is such an ominous word but what was a what is an example of a uh, a. a exchange, a transaction, uh, an action that takes place in this sort of uh, offshore shadow system that would be resonant for someone and kind of demonstrates the challenge. Well, you know, again, you're right, because euro dollar, like the term shadow is sort of a catch all. And it is sort of, you know, it's it's a broad term that can encompass a whole bunch of things. And really, that's, that's really what we're talking about here, because the sky's the limit. As long as you can get one bank to agree with you about any kind of liability you want to create, whether it's a currency swap, a basis swap, an interest rate swap, any kind of derivative transaction, if you can get another bank in another location to say, yes, I agree, that's, that's, that's a form of money. Therefore, you have money. And though it goes on your balance sheet in any kind of different way, as long as it goes on the other balance sheet in the same exact way, you have a monetary transaction. You have something that takes place, and whether it's behalf of a corporate customer or a wealthy individual, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that banks agree that these are monetary transactions and that the end result of these monetary transactions is a real-world transaction that creates some kind of activity or the lack of activity in the real world. So how much how much does this wrapped up with kind of the invention of these increasingly exotic financial instruments? 
Well, it's all it's all it's all put together. Um, one of the big uh, markers in monetary evolution was in the 1980s when interest rate swaps and euro dollar futures were standardized for trade in Chicago. So once now you had not just this 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 basically blank canvas of this offshore dollar space that up until that point had been primarily based on some of the more simplistic forms of of, of monetary liabilities. All of a sudden, you introduce this 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 absolutely massive potential in terms of derivatives and everything just skyrocketed from there. So, okay. So let's, uh, I was, well, by the way, one thing you'll know or you'll learn about me is that I, I kind of come at everything from a historic, uh, historical perspective. Uh, so if, if I sound like I'm trying to kind of drag through a curriculum, you are absolutely right. And I am, cause I think it's really, really helpful for people. So I appreciate it. So we, we kind of introduce all these instruments, they become standardized in the eighties. What does it look like in the couple decades leading up to the, the great financial crisis? The, what, how is this system playing out or exerting force in the larger economy in the nineties and early two thousands? Well, you end up with a system that uh, completely transforms itself. One from what used to be a traditional depository system, or at least largely a depository system into what used to be called commercial banks. And the SNL crisis was a, was a big part of this transformation. So that by the 1990s in particular, and then into the middle 2000s, you had this other way of doing money, the shadow money, global shadow, you know, global euro dollar system that dominated. And the result was absolutely exponential growth in credit and money throughout the, throughout the world, mostly, not entirely, but mostly denominated in the US dollars because that was the global reserve currency. So what you have is this rising tide of globalization in the global economy, tying all these economies together, increased trades, a lot of the good things that, that we associate with globalization that was financed and funded by this, this missing shadow ex, uh, offshore exponential growth in money and credit, which is really uh, exponential growth in banks and banking. So who did this system enrich, right? Who, who is this system good for and who pays the cost for it? Or, or how is the cost paid? Or does it show up, I guess, is a better way to ask it. Well, the cost for it was simply what happened in 2008, right? I mean, the downside of this kind of a system is, is it's inherently unstable, but it didn't look, to, nobody actually believed it was inherently unstable, which is why it got to be such an excessive uh, problem. Because before the, the 2008 crisis, what was assumed by these banks operating in that system was that there was no risk. There was no risk too big. There was no size that we wouldn't go to. There was no exotic transaction we wouldn't invent and then push out into the marketplace because there's, there doesn't seem to be any downside to this. And oh, by the way, everybody believed, as we were all taught to believe, that even if there was some kind of downside, Alan Greenspan would bail everybody out and everybody would be perfectly happy. So there's in this inherently unstable uh, situation, an inherently unstable sit, uh, arrangement, which at the time didn't seem to have any downside in terms of cost either. Because again, the rising tide of globalization, you see, you know, emerging markets like China, Brazil, India, that, that all of a sudden they become economic miracles. And, you know, here we have the shadow money system providing the monetary and credit resources for those things to happen. So globalization was, was very, very, was looked upon very favorably in the pre-crisis area, era. The banking system that operated the monetary resources behind it believed there was no risk to it. So the cost was eventually when that when everything broke down starting in 2007 and 2008, where now all of a sudden we have this arrangement, we're kind of stuck with it. We've got this globalized economy. We require these euro dollar resources to make it work, except now the euro dollar system's broken. Now the global economy's broken. And now we don't have economic growth for going on, what is it, almost 13 years now. 
So let's let's talk about that a little bit. I guess first in the context of the great financial crisis, how did to the point that you were making earlier uh, a, a mortgage crisis in the U.S. turn into a global financial crisis? What was the mechanism? Uh, how did the system seize up basically? Well, it wasn't a it wasn't a mortgage crisis. <laughs> the the subprime mortgage thing was really just the spark that lit the the whole thing alight. That was where that was where the system began to realize, oh. Yeah, maybe there are risks here. And so once it started, once you once you let it once the horses were let out of the barn, so to speak, there was no going back because everybody realized it wasn't just subprime mortgages. The entire structure is inherently risky and unstable. We've we've undervalued the risks of everything in it. And so it was just one thing after another that just cascaded into implosion and failure because for a long time, the risks involved in it were never really appreciated, including the idea that the central bank could bail it out if it ever, if push ever came to shove. And then when you had push come to shove starting in August of 2007, the Fed proved unequivocally that it was really powerless to do much about it. And so it was just it was a it was a tidal wave of failures and and, and uh, structural implosion that just once it started, whether it was subprime mortgages or not, it was impossible to stop. So this, uh, so the the first myth that you mentioned was the kind of myth of the no risk to the system. The second myth had to do with the capacity for central banks to uh, to backstop it to fix it. Uh, you've called this the flood myth, uh, and actually, I think just wrote a piece about uh, you know we shouldn't have had to explain this again. But can you explain what this the flood myth actually is? Well, the flood myth. I mean, look, history repeats itself, and we're repeating basically what happened in two thousand eight and two thousand nine again. And the, the, you know, go back to that period of time, especially in early two thousand nine. Common wisdom or conventional understanding said Ben Bernanke's Fed had just flooded the world with liquidity, had just flooded the world with dollars. Can't, you can see it. I mean, the Fed's balance sheet is expansion. We've got hundreds of billions in bank reserves that it created out of thin air. He created them digitally, printed it as printed money. This is going to be inflationary. The dollar is going to be destroyed. How dare he? And oh, by the way, the government's being reckless. The, uh, Barack Obama's um, administration is, is spending almost $800 billion. I mean, these were astronomical numbers at the time. And yet all we had was more crisis and more recession, the deepest recession since the, uh, since the Great Depression. And so what we're saying is that the myth is the Fed – Printed all this money and flooded the world with dollars, but the reality was that there was an, there was this deficit created by the breakdown in the shadow euro dollar system, which overwhelmed anything the Fed or the federal government tried. Because of this, it's the bank centered system in this offshore space that actually matters. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where that's where credit and money hit the real economy in the bank offshore system, not what the Fed does on its balance sheet. And so you have this interesting sort of dichotomy where the more the Fed does, the worse you know it is because the Fed is responding to the same thing. It's it's not what you see the Fed doing. It's what you don't see happening in the shadow money system. Play tease that out a little bit more because I think this is really interesting. Like, how much does this have to do with uh, the 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 I guess the the contrast between sort of the money printer go burr meme, the memeified view of the world, and the reality of a uh, a, a world where all debts or a huge portion of debts are denominated in dollars, and there's a perpetual shortage of them. Well, I mean, to begin with, you have to understand there's something called a global dollar short. 
And now this is distinct from a shortage. A global dollar short simply means everybody needs dollars. Everybody around the world needs dollars. Even the Chinese, though they hate it, they need dollars every day. Why? Because that's the global reserve currency. And therefore, you have to have enough currency in order to transact anything into the real economy, especially when you're talking about a globalized economy. You've got to have dollars available, and it's usually through your local banking system. So your local banks, whatever country this is, they have to be able to participate in this global dollar marketplace. They have to be able to secure dollars because you know, real economy participants, whether it's companies, uh, uh, national governments even, wealthy individuals, they all have to transact in U.S. dollars. So there has to be a steady supply of U.S. dollars emanating from this offshore dollar system such that every place around the world has a sufficient amount of dollars in order to not to just conduct business activity, but to conduct economic growth associated with that activity. And that includes financial flows, what we call hot money. So there has to be dollars available everywhere in sufficient quantities that it doesn't cause these kinds of disruptions that we see. So that's, that's the global dollar short. And it's a synthetic kind of short because basically you're borrowing every day from the from the banks that operate in this euro dollar system and every you know what you what you assume is that tomorrow when you pick up the phone and call your 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 euro dollar supplier that they're going to say yes we'll just roll over the loans that you borrowed yesterday and the day before we'll roll over them tomorrow but the reality is there are times when the banks who are supplying the dollars that you need to participate in everyday life will say to you um, you know, things aren't looking so good today. I'm going to need more money from you or I need you, I need you to put up more collateral. I need you to do something there. It's going to be more costly for you to borrow dollars today than it was yesterday. And so that causes an enormous disruption. It can cause an enormous disruption that leads to all of these cascading things we see in markets and in, in economies, which at certain points, like in 2007 and 2008, became a global financial crisis. So the, the the popular narrative, obviously, of the, the Fed around that time was uh, they came in with its kind of very bold policies to print a bunch of money, and it, it kind of provided the liquidity that the system needed. What did it, how did it actually play out if you take it from the standpoint of this shadow system? Well, it didn't really do a whole lot. And I, I, would, I would argue that, that that was not the intent either. The Fed wasn't actually providing liquidity. The Fed, didn't, I don't think, actually believed it was providing effective liquidity, at least not directly. You have to understand in an expectations-based policy, what the Fed has to do, at least what it believes it has to do, is to convince people who are operating in the economy and the marketplace that there are no risks, that they have everything covered. And so they're, they're perfectly happy to let people believe that they're printing money because they'll, they believe then that people will act on that belief and therefore that will create self-fulfilling prophecy whereby if you think the Fed has got liquidity covered, if you think the Fed has flooded the world with money and that's going to be inflationary, then you'll do a lot of things today that you normally wouldn't do. And that's, that's really what monetary policy is about, is influencing behavior. It's not about technically being technically proficient in the monetary system or offering actual money. It's about influencing people's behavior that they don't, they don't believe or they, they uh, believe the kinds of risks or the environment that central bankers want them to believe. And that's, you know, again, that's how you can see, you can start to understand why something like 2008 happened. If that is your response to what is a global dollar shortage, a, a world that's screaming for actual effective monetary intervention, and you offer nothing more than handholding and well wishes, yeah, you're going to end up with a global dollar crisis because you're not actually solving the problem. You're hoping that you can make people feel good enough that they solve the problem for you. That's a huge difference. It's really interesting. I mean, it's almost the 
the the perception of uh, of the role of central banks and the Fed in particular is uh, to actually provide you know liquidity to do this sort of money printing, whereas the reality is uh, they're closer to a marketing agency for uh, the system to continue on the path of assuming no risk. Right. And if you can't define money and you can't intervene in the monetary system, what's the next best thing? Well, in theory, the next best thing is to, to let the system work for you. So all you need to do, therefore, is control the behavior of that system, or at least believe that you can control the behavior of that system. If you can't define money, but banks do, but you can influence, if you believe you can influence the bank banking system's behavior on your behalf, and you don't need to define money. And that's what really governed monetary policy throughout the 80s, 90s, and the middle 2000s was the idea that Alan Greenspan would raise or lower the federal funds rate you know, a quarter point here and there. And that guided the entire global economy from nothing more than that. What he really thought was, I don't need to, I don't need to intervene in the monetary system. I don't need to know a damn thing about it. In fact, he actually admitted several times, several important times throughout the 90s that he couldn't define money, including his famous 1996 irrational exuberance speech. What he really said was, we can't define money. So how would we know if the stock market is behaving rationally or not? So what he was saying was, we don't need to. What we'll do is we'll move the federal funds rate around. We'll influence bank behavior and the banks will do the work for us, except he never really accounted for the possibility that maybe the banking system isn't so easy to control. Maybe the banking system has its own parameters and, and constraints. And that maybe it's not so easy just to say, I'm going to influence bank behavior. I'll, I'll get people to believe that I'm flooding the world with, with liquidity. Therefore, they'll do the flood on our behalf. And that's really what happened. It was a breakdown in you know basically the way the world works versus how we're supposed to believe the world works. Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a NASDAQ matching engine, and their APIs are recognized as the best in the industry. Download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. CypherTrace helps grow the crypto economy by making it trusted by governments and safe for consumers and investors. How do they do it? By protecting VASPs, banks, and other financial institutions from crypto laundering risks while protecting user privacy. Years of research have created the world's best cryptocurrency intelligence with the best attribution and deepest token coverage. So if your virtual asset business isn't using CypherTrace to manage compliance risks, you should start now. Learn more at CypherTrace.com. What was then looking at the last decade or so, the last dozen years, the 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 difference or the gap between the popular narrative of uh, markets recovering, ascending, asset prices going up, and uh, what was actually happening in the economy that got us to perhaps where where we are now? Well, the narrative has been that the economy has recovered, and that's reflected in stock prices. When in fact, the economy really hasn't recovered. I mean, you can draw a baseline uh, baseline growth and you can see that the economy, not just the U.S. economy, by the way, the entire global economy, whether it's anywhere else in the world, we departed from that baseline right in 2008, the global monetary event, the global dollar shortage that first erupted 12 years ago. And since then, we've not been able to reachieve that, that prior baseline. 
which means the economy has never recovered. So something that, that went wrong in 2008 was never fixed. And the idea that has perpetuated has been that QE fixed the monetary problem because the Fed printed a bunch of money. Now, we have all sorts of signs and signals to say that's just not true, starting with interest rates. What we're taught about interest rates is that lower rates mean stimulus. Because, I mean, that's Alan Greenspan lowered the federal funds rate, that's stimulus. Alan Greenspan raises the federal funds rate, that's tightening. That's what we're taught to believe. But in fact, historical throughout history, what we see is the exact opposite. When monet, the monetary system is loose and producing money, interest rates are actually high. Think back to the great inflation of the 1970s. Interest rates rose and got up into the double digits as monetary growth was unconstrained. And consequently, on the other side of things, back in the 1930s during the Great Depression, when money was dear, Interest rates were low and they remain low. So the rate straight away, what Milton Friedman called Milton Friedman called the interest rate fallacy, was that when you see interest rates, especially bond yields, go down and stay low, that's a signal that the monetary system has been tight. Not that the Fed has flooded the world with money, but the monetary system has been tight and that, it, that the problem in 2008, which goes along with economic growth, the lack of economic growth since then, is that the, we have never resolved this shadow money problem that we started out with. And another important signal along those lines is the U.S. dollar's exchange value. When you see the dollar rising as it has since the weekend Bear Stearns failed back in 2008 um, – it's a signal, again, that money is dear, that the dollar is in huge demand for these financial flows out there in the, in the euro dollar system. So, and we have those and many more that tell us ever since this, this, the, the first global financial crisis, it has not been resolved. The Fed has not flooded the world with money. We haven't seen inflation because we're still stuck in this tight money environment. So th this gets into some of the ideas you wrote about. Uh, you wrote a piece for Real Clear Markets uh, a couple weeks ago now, I think, called "The Price of the U.S. Dollar Is Ultimately Our Problem." Can you expand on that that a little bit more? And uh, you started to touch on it just a minute ago, but I think it's a really important part of this conversation. Yeah, and it, you know, it goes back to what we started our, uh, our discussion at the beginning. You know, the difference between how the world actually is versus what we're taught. And I think there's a, a huge misconception about what a rising dollar actually means. I mean. People throw around the word strong or the term strong dollar way too loosely. And I don't think many people really understand what a strong dollar actually means. It certainly doesn't mean one that rises in exchange value. Well, we should be looking, you know, strong dollar, true strong dollar is a stable dollar. But, you know, back to the major, you know, the rising dollar, what that actually shows and what the, what I mean by that we're paying the price for it is that there is this monetary, this persistent monetary imbalance that is that is deflationary in nature, but it's also globally deflationary in nature that creates a drag on economic growth such that we haven't been able to recover from the last crisis and that we're paying the price for it in, in terms of all of these kinds of uh, not just market problems and imbalances and destruction but also economic growth that doesn't happen. I mean, we, we don't really appreciate the fact that, you know, we talk about a counterfactual. What if the U.S. economy had been moving along at a, at a four or five trillion dollar better rate over the last several years? I mean, I don't think we would have had, we would have undertaken the amount of political and social disruption before this year that would have, that would have, that would have, that had occurred anyway. So we're paying the price for the fact that 12 years, 13 years ago, this shadow money euro dollar system that the Fed claimed it could influence through its, its you know, expectations-based policy actually broke down. But that was not a one-off temporary event. It was a paradigm shift where because it hasn't, it hasn't been fixed, it hasn't been solved, 
the dollar goes higher, bond yields go lower, and economic growth is that much more restrained as a result. So this brings us up to now. Before the COVID crisis uh, and everything that's transpired over the last few months, what were you? What, what was this? What was the counter narrative to uh, you know stock markets printing all time highs? So this is you know last fall and and early this year. What were you watching? Uh, you know either either with concern or interest. Well, you had first of all the bond market and again yield curves, yield uh, interest rates. Um, Money curves, those kinds of things, euro dollar futures, uh, swap spread, all, all these you know bank centered indications that pointed to. Now, I mean, the, the the global economy is experiencing a downturn. This is going back into 2018, um, where the bond market was very clear, not just in U.S. Treasuries, but you know any kind of safety instrument, which were overbid, were bid and overbid, such that you know rates began to fall, even though here in the U.S. Jay Powell was still hiking interest rates, thinking the econ- economic growth is going to accelerate in 2019. So the bond market was right. I mean, it pegged these rate cuts because the constriction uh, in the euro dollar system was becoming acute again, going all the way back to 2017, and that it was creating a globally synchronized downturn throughout the last half of 2018 and into 2019, which by the end of 2019 was, you know, the you know Europe was basically in recession. The U.S. was pretty close to recession and certainly slowing down. So just as as the the coronavirus pandemic hit, we were in pretty rough shape to begin with. So it, it's really interesting. Uh, this is a, a slight detour, but part of what you're explaining, uh, it's almost like there's these parallel things. There's the the visible monetary system that we talk about as though it's the monetary system, there's the shadow system, which actually accounts, you know, the the the, the part of the iceberg that's under the water, um, so to speak. But then there's also uh, a um, a market signal. Uh, d- gap or, or dialectic where you're talking about all these signals which were telling a very different story than stock markets. And I wonder how much you think that uh, part of our our failure to understand some of these issues, part of our inability to really get the, the reason that some of this stays in the shadows is that our financial media is so focused on kind of the, the top line reporting of stock markets like it's a sport, right? It's sports statistics or something like that. Yeah, no, and it, I think that we're all meant to believe that too, that the stock market is the only market, that it's the true discounting mechanism for everything that goes on in the entire world, across the entire world. And therefore, whatever the stock market says must be what's going on in reality. It's, and the other part of that is too, um, the bond market has been dismissed as nothing more than a tool of the central banks. In fact, central bankers actually believe that interest rates all belong to them. I know Alan Greenspan back in 2005 talked about his conundrum because the bond market wasn't actually behaving the way he wanted it to. He was trying to raise rates and the bond market was saying, no, don't you know, hey, maestro, there's there's this major housing bubble here that's causing so- all sorts of risk. And here you are trying to raise rates because you think everything is fine. So there's, there's, there's massive disconnect all across the board between nobody pays attention to the bond market. Very people, very few people pay any attention at all to the yield curve, except when it inverts, when in fact, the yield curve will tell you everything that the stock market is supposed to tell you. And in fact, you know, when we go back to expectations policy and the idea, what is the Federal Reserve trying to achieve? Its primary market for its expectations influencing is stock market, its financial services industry, to try to signal to portfolio managers and fund managers to say, look, 
we're going to do all this money printing, therefore buy, buy, buy in the stock market because we know the general public believes the stock market is the only market out there. And therefore, we're trying to we're trying to influence consumer and business behavior through the financial services industry. Screw the, you know, pay no attention to the bonds because nobody understands that anyway. It's a, it's a, it's a mess all across the board where we're, we're, we're looking at the wrong thing and the thing that we're, we should be looking at, we don't know how to interpret it. It's, a, it's fascinating. So this gets to, I think, uh, this, this idea of the, 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 the Fed as a communications institution, as a, as a, a propagator of narratives of self-fulfilling prophecy. How does that play into what we've seen over the last 50 days? I think I just read today that was, we've, we've had the, the largest, uh, largest growth in, in a 50-day period in S&P 500 history since the lows in uh, March 23rd. Um, and I know that you wrote recently about uh, the, the lies that, that Powell told. Um, let's bring, I guess let's bring in that part of the story. Well, the, let's, the, let's be, the lies that Powell told was when he went on 60 Minutes a couple Sundays ago, whenever that was, middle of May, uh, and basically said, uh, first of all, when he was asked, um, you know, I think the question was, when did the light switch go on for you that we were going to be into a financial crisis? And, and Powell sat there with a straight face and said, oh, no, there was no light switch. There was no aha moment. We saw this thing coming. Which is a total complete lie, because if you remember anything about the you know late February, early part of first half, first twenty days of March, there was nothing the Fed did that worked. And furthermore, they were rolling out one panicky program after another, and nothing seemed. I mean, does, does, did he not think that people would remember that that Sunday night where they announced unlimited QE and they're jiggering on the dollar swaps, and then the next day the market had its worst day since 1987. I mean, so, I mean, to, to come out and lie like he did, and that wasn't the only thing he lied about. He lied at a lot of different things. The reason he was doing that, because he had to show people, he had to establish in the public narrative that the Fed has got it covered. We've got, we're under control. And what most people realize, I mean, most of the general American public were not paying that close enough attention to what happened in March. All they know is that the stock market tanked, which again, since they're taught to believe that the stock market is the, the primary signal, that was a big, huge warning that Powell had to answer for. So they know the stock market tanked, the Fed supposedly bailed it out, and oh boy, the, the stock market is, is now fixed. If you believe that and you believe that the Fed saw it coming, and that it responded effectively – then he's left you to believe that he's got everything covered from here on out, that there's no more risk. Everything's fine. There's no possible way you shouldn't do anything other than buy more stocks and spend more money and behave like a, a reckless consumer because you've, you've been led to believe that the Fed actually does flood the world with money. The Fed actually is a competent or monetary organization and that this is not all some big, huge charade where the guy behind the curtain really is a shabby guy who doesn't really know what he's doing, as was proven once again in the first half of March. It's interesting. The uh, one of the kind of almost tropes of uh, FinTwit at this point is to call out the glaring incongruity between uh, you know the the stock market recovering to near uh, you know near, near where it was before all of this versus you know forty million unemployed. And I know you just wrote about uh, unemployment and jobs, and and it's interesting because you basically made it a, a, a an argument that what we were experiencing with this unemployment crisis is actually I think these were your words less disease, more breakdown. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, <laughs> it's less about the pandemic at this point than it is about uh, 
than it is about this 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 monetary and economic dislocation, which is beyond simply the economic the non economic shutdowns. I mean, look, we everybody knew the economy was going to be bad based upon the way governments reacted, and I think overreacted to the threat they were facing. And so, okay, there was going to be an economic dislocation, but what has happened is that we've we've kind of seen that. It's a lot bigger than we all thought it would be because, again, I think the global economy was in a bad shape uh, to start this thing. But furthermore, it almost doesn't matter. Once we got through the shutdown periods, once we got through the periods where you know people were thrown out of work because of the shutdowns and social distancing and all those means, the belief was that we, everybody would just go right back to work. Which I mean, if if it was if we all we were talking about is a non-economic shutdown, that should have been what happened. We shut everything down, open everything up, and it goes right back to the way it was. We don't really care about this thing anymore. It's just a historical oddity that we'll all laugh about someday. But that's not what we see going on here. And in fact, that's not what Jay Powell and his monetary models see either. They're actually showing that in, in which are the most optimistic case uh, these monetary models that actually believe Jay Powell is effective at what he does. Um, they're all showing how over the next year and a half, we're going to be worse off than we were in 2008 and 2009. That's the, I mean, by the end of 2022 or by the end of 2021, entering 2022, they're thinking we're going to have unemployment in still around eight and a half percent with a pop employment population ratio down around 56. I mean, you don't understand. I mean, that's these are tremendously awful numbers as an most optimistic case. So you can start to understand why Jay Powell lied on 60 Minutes, why he's gone into this overdrive spin of, oh, we're going to buy it. We're going to support every market price. There's no risk anymore. We've got everything covered because the reality of the situation is beyond the, the COVID-19 shutdowns is that we're in for the long haul here, that the economic pain is going to be real and it's going to linger for quite a lot of time. And what would that mean if we had another setback in markets? It would be catastrophic. So he has to do everything he possibly can to further forward this narrative that everything's covered. Don't worry about a thing. We've got it. We've completely. We're going to support every market. We're going to buy corporate bonds, which they're not really buying corporate bonds. But don't you know? Don't worry about the details. We've got it covered. Just go back to sleep and start spending again. That's really the task before him because. You know, what we're seeing, especially on the other side of this, is not strictly non-economic in nature. What are the narratives that you're seeing propagated in terms of what happens to come next? Uh, you know, obviously, there's there's an inflation camp, there's a deflation camp, there's a, a, a set of things inside. And what's your best sense of, of how this plays out over the next you know few months or years? Well, again, we're right back at 2009 again, where people are saying, oh, my God, the money printing, the irresponsible federal government spending, it has to be inflationary. And if you remember anything about you know 2009 forward, there was never inflation. And the reason was because of the shadow money system and the economic drag it created meant that the entire way was disinflationary. We had deflationary problems. They weren't, they weren't strictly all at once or, or in a straight line. But for the most part, since 2009, the shadow money system overrode whatever the Fed did or whatever the federal government did. And that's why we had no recovery, no inflation. Now, what the Fed will tell you now is, OK, yeah, maybe so, but we've done everything even more. We've gone even bigger. The federal government has spent you know, two and three times as much as it did back then. The Federal Reserve has bought, you know, increased the level of bank reserves by $1.6 trillion in a matter of months, which is way more than Ben Bernanke ever did. And so you know, the idea is that we've got much bigger numbers that we can see you know, the quote, the so-called money printing that we see on the Fed's balance sheet. But yet again, 
it's what you don't see that matters and what, what the markets are telling, what the dollars tell. I mean, all these, these symbols are all these signals and market prices are that, you know, outside of the stock market that no, I mean, the, the end result is the same. The shadow money problem is much bigger, even if we gave Federal Reserve credit for money printing, that the deficit that it's printing into is already much bigger and much more established and much wider, much more lingering than whatever the Fed's done so far and will probably pledge to do, assuming even if you assume the Fed has been effective. So the idea of inflation because of the irresponsible government plus money printing doesn't take into account the other side of things, which is the shadow stuff that you don't see. Where are we likely to see uh, the um, the 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 cracks in that system or the, the problems in that system? How do they manifest uh, in the period we're going into? I mean, other than what we've already, we've already yeah. seen so far. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I, it's, you know, some of the specific symptoms that we saw back in March, things like credit spreads blowing out with credit markets that were being, you know, basically bidless fire sales. Um, you know, you, you've seen those spreads come way down on the belief the Fed is supporting those markets, but yet the volumes have been pretty thin on the, on the buying, as well as how that played a role in repo markets and the way that, that repo collateral uh, is transmitted throughout the system. And so there are still those same fault lines that are there. We just don't see them anymore. You know, we still have monetary deficiencies show up all over the world, but yet they're not as obvious as they were in March. That's really what's been different is that back in March, this hidden shadow money dysfunction suddenly broke out into the open where everybody could see what was going on and everybody could see that it was wrong because, I mean, the stock market dropped 30, 35%. Now that's kind of receded back into the shadows, but receding back into the shadows is not the same thing as going away or dissipating entirely, which, by the way, this is the way crises work. This is what we saw in 2008 too. In the middle part of 2008, everybody saw thought the same exact thing. You know, from, from August of 2007 until Bear Stearns was, was, you know, guided into the hands of J.P. Morgan in March of 2008, you had this, you know, the shadow money crisis that became an obvious, visible public crisis. And then after, you know, Bear Stearns, it was like, oh, is that it? That wasn't so bad. And you had this multi-month period where stocks rose, credit spreads normalized, things that started to look like they were – that was the worst of it. We saw the we saw the worst of it and it wasn't really that bad. And what I call today survivor's euphoria. And that's what really happened from between you know middle of March 2008 until that summer was the idea that, okay, because these monetary problems are back in the shadows and we don't see them anymore, the Fed must have fixed it. And well, by the way, the Fed fixed it by flooding the world with liquidity. That was the narrative back then too. Of course, by late summer of 2008 into September 2008, we realized that wasn't the case at all because the system had been broken. Its, its fault lines had been exposed and there really was no way going back. And so what I see as a parallel to what's going on now is the same kind of thing. March 2020 wasn't a one-off event. It was simply the, the warning that, hey, the fault lines, the cracks in the system have been re-exposed in a very public way, but these crises are not, uh, you know, say, they don't go in a straight line. It's not like, you know, March through, you know, uh, September 2008 was crisis, crisis, crisis. You have these ebbs and flows, these twists and turns, which there are periods during them where you think, oh, that was it. We've, we've gotten past the worst. And what's happening now is that that's being attributed to, oh, well, we've seen the worst of the shutdown. We don't seem to be having a second wave of the disease pandemic showing up. 
you know, companies, the, the economies are starting to reopen. And, you know, there were no big bank failures. We didn't have anything uh, beyond what happened in March. So it must be that everything is fixed. And in fact, you know, uh, there are lots of signs that no, it's just we're, we're in the same kind of interim period where we're just waiting for the next leg, the next shoe to drop. There's an interesting um, time horizon part of this. Going back to you know the one one kind of theme for our conversation has been the way that these narratives get propagated via media, and uh, and you see it you know when when media is organized around a what's the story of that day kind of model, which is you know uh, which it obviously is. You see it even in the context of the dollar, right? So uh, we had Brent Johnson on last week, and you know uh, for for this big period, everyone was like, "Ooh, dollar milkshake theory." Got it. We were on board with it now. And then the dollar starts to look uh, a little less strong compared to everything else. And everyone's like, ha, we were right all along. There was no dollar milkshake theory. And it's so, it's the, the thing that's so crazy about it is how fast the narrative shifts almost on the basis of production deadlines as much as any real, real uh, analysis, it seems like. Yeah. They, I mean, uh, you know, all of these kinds of things, these kinds of periods in history are spread out over a long period of time and they don't lend themselves to nuggets and, and, and you know, bite-sized daily stories where you can't really see the big picture. I mean, the dollar can rise and fall on any given day and it can rise and fall on a given week and month and it won't make any difference. What, what matters is the long-term trends behind all of them. You know, the great you know, global financial crisis in 2008 took two years to manifest and, and get through to a conclusion. You know, the, the Great Depression, everybody thinks, oh, the crash of October 1929 and boom, we're into depression. Well, no, the contraction phase took almost you know three and a half years to play out. And there were ebbs and flows, twists and turns within it too. You know, you had massive rallies in the stock market during the, the contraction, the collapse of the Great Depression. And that's really what you have to you have to keep in mind that this is not a short term thing. It doesn't just happen all at once. You know, because March or what happened in early March was all condensed into a couple week period, people think, well, that's it. That's what happened. It's, it's a process that plays out over a pretty lengthy period of time. And you have to pay attention to the big picture. And you're right. It, it's not just that the. It doesn't lend itself easily to the way the financial media works, but we also have to keep in mind the financial media to you know to explain how they operate. You know, editorial standards demand that they pay attention to what central bankers say because central bankers are the the declared authority about how these things work. So if Jay Powell says I flooded the world with money, nobody in any media room is going to say, well, no, you didn't. Because that would run against all all established editorial standards, even though those standards are absolutely wrong, and Jay Powell is absolutely wrong. Nobody will say it. Nobody will challenge what these these guys who have been given an authority are saying. So you have both of those things working in concert, where people are getting the wrong idea about what's actually happening. At the same time, they're focusing way too narrow on short term fluctuations that, in the end, are just noise. How do you see or do you see uh, geopolitical intrigue uh, contributing to this in any way? Particularly, I'm thinking about uh, growing kind of uh, a return to trade war tensions with China. Well, it's been the same. I mean, monetary growth in the shadow money system and globalization went hand in hand. And it went hand in hand for a reason because you couldn't have one without the other. And so the lack of monetary growth in the euro dollar system over the last 12 years has made globalization turn on its ear. And so all of the benefits or even, even just presumed benefits of globalization that even, you know, emerging market countries were, 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 were taking from that prior, the pre-crisis era have disappeared. And so economies across the world have been suffering as a result. And because people are not given an explanation for why that is, 
because they've been told, hey, there's no monetary problem. Jay Powell said so, just like Janet Yellen said so, just like Ben Bernanke said so. Because they're not able to correctly identify what's been wrong, they've turned their, their, their ire and their anger on globalization itself. They've said, well, it must be this globalization trend that screwed everybody. And some, I mean, you know, globalization, to be fair, did create some winners and losers. And, and so there are definitely pockets of messiness that are always associated with economic trends, big economic trends. But by and large, over the last 12 years, because nobody's been able to identify what's really going wrong in the, in the global economy, people have been left to their own devices. And politicians, as politicians will always do, have been left to fill the vacuum with their own ideas about who to blame. And it's usually we're going to blame the other guy. That's the easiest thing to do when nobody has any idea what's wrong. Furthermore, when, when the people we listen to say there's nothing wrong and we know that there is, it's easy for ideologues to fill that space and to start saying, we're going to blame this guy. We're going to blame that person. We're going to blame everybody else. And it never, and, you know, it doesn't fix the problem because nobody really knows what the problem is, except that they know that there is a problem. What should average or regular people want? What, what should citizens want in this, in this sort of case? In what I mean, you're talking about, uh, you know, the monetary sense. Yeah, it's mean, a pretty broad so, question. Yeah. I, so uh, I guess what I've been thinking about a lot as we've been talking is there is this incredible frustration and anger, this deep seated sense of something being wrong, something being off. And you have that contrasted with, uh, you know the the reality of the lived uh, economic experience for people, and it's produced a lot of different things, right? On the one hand, you have kind of the uh, Bitcoin uh, libertarian, less government type of backlash, but then you've also seen the rise of things like MMT. You've seen populism on both sides of the political aisle in the U.S., and all of these things share a uh, a sense of kind of a, a economic dislocation, disconnect, even though they they locate its cause somewhat differently. Um, and I guess that the the challenge is, you know. The Fed, it almost sometimes feels like the Fed has no choice but to propagate this story. But if that's the case, what should citizens want from the Fed? What should they want from their elected leaders vis-a-vis monetary policy? You know. Well, I think the the larger question here is really one about technocracy and the ideal of a technocracy, right? Because that's really what we're talking about. When you know, Alan Greenspan moving controlling bank behavior by moving the federal funds rate around. That's what we really mean. We mean that we have this enlightened individual who knows enough about what he's doing that he can guide the hand of the entire global economy through nothing more than these these you know ridiculous levers. And so what we're really talking about is, you know, are they really if to be a technocracy, shouldn't they be technically proficient at what they do? And what you find is that, you know, even if even if you pin them down and make them admit it, what they'll say is, no, we're not really technically proficient in monetary matters. We just kind of believe that if we, if we influence people's behavior, it'll all work out predictably. And that's kind of an idiotic proposition. So I think, you know, just on a more basic fundamental level, maybe we shouldn't we should demand something more than an, an idiotic proposition. That if, if if we do believe in a technocracy, which I particularly don't, but if, if that's really what the public demands, then we should demand it to be proficient in the thing that it claims to be proficient in, which is the monetary system in the economy. And that's not really what economists do, by the way. Economists are nothing more than statisticians who spend their time perfecting elegant mathematical equations that have absolutely limited use in the real economic, uh, real real world systems. So, I mean, on the one sense, that's that's what we should demand. But on the other, you know, the the other question is, you know, if we don't really want, the, I don't really want the Fed involved in this much in, in this stuff at all. And so, you know, what is a monetary system or an economic system that actually delivers what we all want, which is, you know, return to actual economic growth? 
And that to me is not inflation or deflation. I think that's that misses the point, which is inflation like deflation are both forms of monetary instability. You know, we're again, we're taught to believe that if we're in a deflationary environment, the way out of it is to do the opposite, which is inflation. And that's that's entirely wrong. If we're in a deflationary environment, that's an unstable environment. And the way to get out of it is the opposite, which is to create a stable environment. And so that to me is the overriding question. The overriding answer is how do we create a stable monetary environment so that we can have a stable economic environment so that we go back to a system that actually perpetuates sustainable economic growth that has been missing for a very, very long time. And to me, that does, that does not involve a Federal Reserve. It certainly doesn't involve these economists who want to, who are trying to be, um, you know, want to be psychologists and think that's their method of, of technocracy. So, you know, I think there's a couple of different parts of that question there. And a lot of it has to do with first understanding the situation that we're in, which is no, the, you know, the Federal Reserve is not what you think it is. Do you think that the Overton window has shifted a little bit on that? I mean, it feels to me, certainly I'm coming at it from the Bitcoin perspective where these kind of conversations happen more frequently, but you know, you've been uh, thinking about this, writing about this, researching this for a while. Do you see more receptivity to these conversations than we had, call it a decade ago? Oh, absolutely. And it's, but it's, it's, it's very incremental and it's very um, reluctant. It's embraced reluctantly. The idea that, okay, there's this offshore dollar system. Yeah, well, maybe there is, but you know, I, I, it's, it's got to be limited because we still have to preserve the central bank at the center of our universe because, you know, economics, when you break it down, is not a discipline or a science. It's certainly not a scientific discipline. It's mostly an ideology. And the ideology has placed economists at the central bank at the center of it. And therefore, no matter how they tr- they realize that you know there must be something wrong with this ideology and their theology because it's not producing the results that that are that are promised and intended they still can't make that that leap forward where they say okay this is really how it works and it's not at all what we thought it was I mean, it's not at all what, how we thought it worked and it, that's really where we are is that it there's economics and central banking and modern in the uh, mainstream monetary thought are trying to reconcile a decade's worth of broken promises with preserving their worldview at all costs. And it, 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 it makes for very small and incremental improvement. Well, Jeff, I really appreciate your time. I know the audience is going to love this conversation and I, I imagine that it's going to open up a lot more doors uh, than it closes. So I'd love to have you back again sometime as we uh, see if see if the emperor's clothes are, are revealed to be uh, to be to be not there even more over over the next few months. Yeah. And, you know, my last parting thought is, you know, we've, we've only just scratched the surface here. And I mean, you know, we, we want to have an encompassing discussion about all of these things, but, the, you know, you talk about the history, you talk about the way the monetary system actually works. You could, we could spend hours on each one of these particular topics because there's so much there. And the reason there's so much there to, for us to talk about is because economics and, you know, mainstream popular thought has done such a poor job. You know, economic illiteracy is rampant. Monetary scholarship has been non-existent for 40, 50 years. And so there's this tremendous space for us to, you know, to try to get everybody to, to, to be brought up to speed. Well, the, uh, I would say, and I'll go on the record on air, this is an open invite if you ever want to collaborate on figuring out how we expand this education to more different types of people and bring those voices together, because that's certainly what the, the mission of this uh, this podcast is. And, you know, the, the more interesting ideas to, to, to get out there, the, the happier that I am. 
Me too. And, you know, I think that's what unites us. And when we're talking about, you know, cryptocurrency, people who are drawn to the cryptocurrency space, it's the same thing, maybe coming at it from a different angle. We all agree that something's wrong. Now, I think I have an answer to what that something is, and it's my job to try to convince you that I have the right answer. But really, that's 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 what we're united is that we, we believe that. We're missing something here, man. Something's not. Something's not. Something's not right. And you know, you know, we're going to figure out what it is, and we're going we're going to do something about it. Well, thank you for all your work on that progress, and uh, again, really appreciate the time. Thanks. There's so much to unpack and think about and dive deeper in in what Jeff was saying, but one concept that I keep coming back to is this idea that if central banks can't actually properly identify the money supply and what is or isn't money, how could they possibly actually interact with it? How could they exert influence on it? In a world where they can't, their only tool is actually perception. It's media. It's the idea of giving markets information which reinforces markets' behavior. And instead of dealing with economics, they instead become machines for trying to provoke particular types of human behavior. It's a really fascinating concept, and I think also has some pretty serious implications for how we look at those institutions. If, for example, everyone just treated that as normal, it might change the nature of their ability to inspire that behavior for sort of the normal tricks of the trade to actually have their desired impact. It's so much, like I said, to unpack here, and uh, I hope we have Jeff on again to dig deeper into it. But for now, guys, I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you hanging out. Let me know what you think. Have you spent any time on the shadow banking system? Have you thought about the euro dollar system before? Hit me up at NLW. Let me know if you want more of Jeff's perspective or perspectives like this. And as always, be safe and take care of each other. Peace, guys.